SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Well, Indigenous Business Month ends today, and winners of the 2022 Indigenous Business Month Awards have been announced. We'll be joined in the program by Dr. Michelle Evans, co-founder Indigenous Business Month, to explore with us the outstanding First Nation businesses that have been recognized this year. As you'll hear, the indigenous business sector has created opportunity and change in many communities across the country and is a testament to the resilience, strength, advocacy and determination of First Nations people. Then we'll turn our attention to last week's federal budget, looking at the opposition's reply, accusing the government of walking away from key election promises. We also have a story about football, as in soccer, as Indigenous Football Week just wrapped up. But right now, the latest news. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, hundreds of people attended gatherings to honor Perth teenager Cassius Tavi. Thousands without power after windstorm in Victoria. And right-wing leader Jair Bolsonaro defeated in Brazil's presidential election. Several vigils and rallies have taken place over the weekend around the country and overseas for Cassius Tavi, the 15-year-old Noonga boy who died after allegedly being chased and bashed with a metal pole in Perth's northeast last week. His death has sparked outpourings of grief and has seen indigenous elders voicing fears that racism played a part in the attack. The Prime Minister says his thoughts are with Cassius Tavi's grieving family. The 15-year-old was allegedly bashed with a metal pole while walking home from a school with friends in Perth earlier this month. He suffered serious head injuries and died in hospital on Sunday. A 21-year-old man, Jack Stephen James Braley, has been charged with his murder. Police are examining allegations racial slurs were made towards the teen. Anthony Albanese has called his death a terrible tragedy. This uh, attack uh, just breaks your heart. Uh, we're a better country than that. And uh, my heart goes out to the family and the friends. The Northern Territory Secret Sites Monitoring Body is launching a High Court appeal against a ruling that found the Commonwealth could not be held legally responsible for damage in Kakadu National Park.
Last month, the NT Supreme Court found Parks Australia had carried out illegal construction near the top pools of Kakadu's Gunlom Falls, deemed to be built too close to a sacred men's site. But the court found Parks Australia was immune from liability under the NT Sacred Sites Act. The Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, AAPA, has now filed an application for special leave to appeal to the High Court. AAPA Chief Executive Dr. Benedict Kambari says it is unacceptable that Commonwealth officers and corporations are free to desecrate Aboriginal sacred sites with impunity. More than 14,000 people have been left without power in Victoria after damaging wind gusts hit southern parts of the state. Gale force winds struck communities from the South Australian border to across metropolitan Melbourne and Gippsland. The State Emergency Service has received more than 350 calls for help in 24 hours in the wake of the windstorm, most of them from outer eastern Melbourne. Meanwhile, in New South Wales, damaging winds are expected to develop across eastern parts of the state, prompting fears trees and power lines could fall in already saturated soil. South Australia is also expecting wild weather with coastal and elevated areas likely to experience damaging winds. Conservationist with the ties to France and Australia has been freed after being taken hostage in Chad. Dr. Jerome Huguenot was abducted last week by unknown individuals in the northeastern Wadi Fira province. Interim President of Chad Mahama Idris Deby has now confirmed his release. The duo French and Australian citizen manages an oryx park in the country on behalf of the Sahara Conservation Fund, Conservation SCF Conservation Group. The US Ambassador to Australia has called for Washington and Canberra to continue to work together to maintain peace amid continuing continuing tensions in the Pacific region. Caroline Kennedy says the two allies have cooperated for decades on a rules-based order. She has told the ABC that continued peace in the Indo-Pacific needs to be underpinned by a mix of diplomacy and deterrence. America doesn't have a stronger, closer ally, and so I think I see that every day as I go around, and I think... uh, so, and everyone's been so friendly, it's so beautiful, so I'm really honored to be here. Questions are being asked about the safety of a bridge which has collapsed in India's state of Gujarat, killing at least 80 people. Opposition party leaders allege the government did not conduct a thorough technical assessment and load bearing capacity test before reopening the bridge to the public last week following six months of renovations. The 230-meter bridge was built during British rule in the 19th century. The footbridge was packed with sightseers enjoying holiday festivities when it collapsed and plunged them into the river below. At least 18 people have been killed in a mudslide set off by a storm in a coastal Philippine village that had once been devastated by a killer tsunami. Officials say the victims mistakenly thought another huge tidal wave was coming and died after running towards a mountain in Kusiong, a village in the southern Mangindanao province. It is feared that another 80 to 100 people may have been buried by the deluge or were washed away in flash floods. Survivor Milagros Pascual says it is a miracle she and her family survived. My granddaughter clung around my neck while I ran up to high ground. Every step was hard because the flood was going down towards us and water was getting into my eyes. When I looked back, the water was so high. My whole house was swept away. 
The devastation is part of a wider trail of destruction caused by tropical storm Nalge in a wide swath of the Philippine archipelago. More than 168,000 people have fled to evacuation camps while the overall death toll has risen to 80. Leftist leader Lula da Silva has defeated incumbent Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil's hotly contested presidential election. His victory marks a stunning comeback for the leader who was jailed in 2018 for 19 months on bribery convictions that the Supreme Court overturned last year, clearing the way for him to seek a third presidential term. Da Silva was the country's former president from 2003 to 2010. His win marks the end of the country's most right-wing government in decades. The vote is being seen as a rebuke for the fiery far-right populism of Bolsonaro, who emerged from the backbenches of Congress to forge a novel conservative coalition, but lost support as Brazil ran up one of the worst death tolls of the COVID-19 pandemic. A journalist has been crushed to death by a car carrying the former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, who has been travelling to the nation's capital to pressure the federal government into calling snap elections. The accident happened near the city of Gujranwala, 220 kilometres from Islamabad, as Khan led a convoy along with his supporters. Witnesses say 40-year-old Sadaf Naim lost her balance and fell onto the road as she tried to climb onto Khan's truck to interview him and was struck by the vehicle's wheel. Imran Khan's spokesman, Fawad Chaudhry, says Khan has temporarily halted his long march as a sign of respect. To mark the morning, we have decided today to end this long march, which was to be terminated in Kamoke for the day. This long march will start again tomorrow morning. There has been a, spe- a breakthrough in a stalemate created by Russia's withdrawal from a United Nations brokered agreement which had been allowing grain to be exported from Black Sea ports Moscow was blockading. Moscow suspended its participation in the Black Sea deal at the weekend in response to what it alleged was a Ukrainian drone attack on its fleet. The UN and Ukraine have now struck a deal with Turkey, which which allows for 14 vessels currently in Turkish waters to be moved. The Joint Coordination Center says 40 outbound vessels will also be inspected today under the plan. And back home, domestic violence advocates have urged parliamentary inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry to design legislation on coercive control in a way that reduces harm for victims. Women's Safety New South Wales CEO Hayley Foster says action needs to be taken to ensure that victims of domestic violence are not mistakenly identified as the perpetrators. Ms Foster says that those responsible for coercive control are often able to use the system to their advantage. She says the parliament needs to consider these scenarios when deciding on the level of burden of proof required to prosecute future allegations. We have to always think about the message that's being sent when we put in place legislation that has an impossibly high bar. I think the message that we send by making it so high and so out of reach is is that which I I outlined in my opening statement, and that is that um, it is not important, it's not serious. I guess the other side of that is the message it's sending to perpetrators Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we can continue continue this behaviour unabated. A public hearing into the robot debt scheme is taking place in Brisbane today. Proceedings will be the first in the initial hearing block for the Royal Commission, which will look at how the scheme was introduced and how the program was developed as government policy. 
RoboDebt was an automated debt recovery scheme that was scrapped by the former coalition government in 2020, but not before it had issued some 470,000 wrongful debts. And uh, to sports, to netball, and the Australian Diamonds have sealed a three-match series against England with a convincing victory in Game 2. Australia's national netball team defeated the English Roses 56 goals to 48. A crowd of 14,117 people at Sydney's Kudos Bank Arena watched Australia lead for most of the game and produce a number of unanswered four- and five-goal busts to stay ahead. Diamond's coach Stacey Marinkovic says she's pleased with Australia's performance, which gives them a fourth straight win after victory in January's Quad Series, the Commonwealth Games in August, and October's Constellation Cup. Now, having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, a sunny day 34, Perth, partly cloudy 20, Adelaide showers 15, Melbourne, similar conditions 20 degrees, Hobart, a shower of 222, Albury, Wodonga, cloudy 19, Canberra, showers and a possible storm 20 degrees, Wollongong, showers increasing 25, Sydney, much the same 28, Newcastle, showers increasing as well, a top of 29, Brisbane, partly cloudy day 31, Townsville, similar conditions with 31 degrees, Keynes, mostly sunny 32 Alice Springs mostly cloudy 30 degrees Darwin sunny 35 degrees and the Torres Strait Islands a partly cloudy day and a top of 33 degrees and that is NITV Radio News TV radio, on radio, online and mobile. Coming up next in your program, well, as Indigenous Business Month comes to an end today, we look back at some of uh, the achievements, the resilience of uh, First Nations uh, businesses, especially we explore Indigenous Business Award winners with Michelle Evans, co-founder Indigenous Business Month. We also look at the federal budget from the opposition's perspective. And as Indigenous Football Week, football as in soccer, closes its activities, we explore the state of this code and First Nations players. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Indigenous Business Month 2022 is culminating with the most anticipated event of the month, rather event of the year, the announcement of Indigenous Business Month Award winners, celebrating outstanding achievements of First Nations businesses. And I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Evans, co-founder Indigenous Business Month, Mara Program Director and Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Business School to explore Indigenous Business Month 2022, and the Worthy Award winners. First of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. Oh, thanks for having me, Bertrand. It's great to uh, be with you. And excellent. Happy Indigenous Business Month. Usually we catch up at the beginning of the Indigenous Business Month, um, a few weeks even before when uh, the theme of the year is announced. But this time around, we are catching up at the end of the month. We can start actually by exploring this thing because it was actions today, impact tomorrow. Mm. Uh, tell us about this before going to the businesses that have been awarded uh, last night. Yeah. No, thanks for that. I, I think uh, the co-founders, um, Mayra Sonta and Lisa Watergo and I, 
um, and our teams uh, because Amira is the CEO, uh, co-founder of um, 33 Creative, of course, and uh, Lisa Watergo with her nearly 30-year-old Indigenous business, uh, Iscariot Media. Um, it's, it's great. And now Dylan do a team here at, at Melbourne University, Melbourne Business School. So I guess together and across all of those people, we, we were thinking about, you know, what what kind of is resonating this year? Um, and I think with the uh, all of us in the world are focused on energy transition, but there's also, I think, a little bit around an, an evolution of truth-telling that is happening in our nation over the next while and that push that there is a lot of change and what we do today matters for, for tomorrow. It shapes tomorrow. We build um, tomorrow from, from our work today and I think we wanted to focus uh, on the everyday excellence that Indigenous businesses engaged in and how they are very impactful businesses. And I, I think, you know, it is good to catch up later in the month because you've you've seen it, uh, the theme being taken up across social media and people kind of posting these um, impact stories, I guess, and, and talking about the actions that they are uh, are taking um, in their in their businesses, in their communities, in their families, and and the impact that it's happening. So um, that's what the kind of um, piece around our theme is talking about. We are really, I guess, Bertram, trying to focus a little bit on the future. I've seen the list of uh, the winners this year, and I've been following Indigenous Business Month really passionately over the last few years. And I've seen uh, Indigenous entrepreneurship really thriving. I've uh, spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in the last few years and always surprised to see the winners of businesses that uh, we may not, not have heard of but who are really making an impact. Right. It's, it's so exciting to um, to field such a, a broad array of applications. I guess one of the things I might start with, Bertrand, is that this year uh, the founders, uh, well, we've been talking about it for many years, I guess, is, is trying to add another new award um, because we've been noticing um, across the Indigenous business sector how um, vibrant regional businesses are and we wanted to really... Um, uh, make that a big, big piece and showcase regional business excellence this year. So our inaugural Regional Indigenous Business Award winner uh, this year is South Coast Seaweed. And, uh, I mean, such an incredible um, firm. And we had uh, one of the co-founders, James Thomas, uh, down here in Melbourne for the awards night and uh you know, they've got this 10-year mission um, for creating a commercial seaweed processing and research facility. But, you know, when we step back into the back end of it, we see 
uh, the revitalization of traditional knowledges and practices and then how that's creating at the front end a very modern and sustainable um, commercial output through a business vehicle and these are the stories that I, I mean, I'm sure you do too. I get so very excited to hear them and they are like um, little gems that we've never heard about before. But um, to celebrate uh, this business and that community and what they're doing. And I think in 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 context too, Bertrand, and you've probably been following it, just all the things that we're hearing about uh, the role seaweed can play um, in in diets, in um, even in the diets of um, cattle to stop uh, methane production and uh, the impacts on sustainable output and carbon. It's fascinating, and I, I, I'm just yeah very excited by this firm. How was uh, the process of uh, really choosing? Because I know you said there's so many applicants, but. It must have been really hard to choose uh, the winning uh, businesses because I've seen these ones. I've never heard about them before until uh-huh. I saw the the announcement, the, the media release. Never heard about them before. And when I look at it, it's really outstanding. I saw the Murray, uh, the PwC, Mara Award winner, and um, yeah. uh, all those. It's just uh, unbelievable. It is. And, and I mean, look, if we, we talk about um, the PwC Boost, Murrah and Boost Initiative, it it's kind of sits aside, apart in a sense as its own big sort of award because it is a partnership with PwC where the, uh, the winner gets um, $30,000 worth of PwC consulting assistance to boost their, their business. And uh, how did how look? You see, the winner, the winner is Healthy Dreaming, which is a social health and community care service, and they've been working around the NDIS system in Port Augusta. Um, and the the CEO or founder, managing director, Jacinta McKenzie. Uh, when you think about the impact that that business is having with the cultural safe framework. Um, working with people who um, require those NDIS services and their and their hopes for the future to move into more aged care services and how important that is to our communities um, to have really culturally safe Indigenous-led aged care services and NDIS services. Um, it is an outstanding business, right? So um, even though we do, we are um, often met with, you know, quite a, a number of applications, um, the winner over time in, in that kind of judging space, we, we really are looking at um, the aspirations for the future, um, where how the PwC consulting services could really help structure and, and build and grow that business, um, supporting the CEO um, to do so. Um, but also, um, I mean, I just look at that firm, Bertrand, and think about um, the impact it's having in their community. It's, it was beautiful, beautiful to see the award winners stand up. And, and just that, I mean, it really makes you happy to do what you do like they're so excited to be noticed 
for what they're doing day in, day out, Indigenous business people that are, you know, just doing what they need to do and to be really noticed uh, is such a, a beautiful blessing. Yeah. The awards this year are uh, announced after the budget has been delivered. Uh, maybe a comment on uh, the impact of uh, this new budget on uh, Indigenous business because they've got a new focus on uh, improving uh, First Nations uh, lives. On a business perspective, what would be your comment on uh, the new budget? Well, I think, you know, it, it comes back to um, how the budget will impact on the day-to-day lives of business people and their families and get going forward. There wasn't any um, necessarily focused um, support around Indigenous business as far as I could understand. But, you know, Indigenous business leaders are, you know, uh, family people uh, um, trying to make a living and contribute. So uh, in this as many ways as um, it impacts all of us, I think. Sorry to not have a greater analysis. I would I would love to. Um, but I, I will say, Bertrand, I think um, the thing that excites me about contributions to our economy by Indigenous businesses is that we need to be able to tell these stories more. And one of the award winners this year from the Ingenuity Award this year was the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. And they've kind of just instituted the world's first um, in trading platform for environmental and allied commodities uh, in their Catalyst platform. This is not just fantastic Indigenous business leadership. This is world um, standard uh, innovation in in the area of carbon commodities and and capture. And I think, you know, um, that's what's going to um, really lead in this world. Um, If I can just say about the other two winners from this year, we have, um, as you know, we love to celebrate those businesses that are doing business with other Indigenous business, so an Indigenous to Indigenous award, if you will. And uh, um, Adam Sorota, who is the Managing Director of Far North Queensland Business called Bridgman, um, was the winner this year. His his uh, firm, which is a, a metal manufacturing and construction firm, and just the amount of um, businesses and employment angles and working with traditional owners. It's an incredibly impactful firm. And as you can see, we kind of, with this year's um, winners in, in ap- applying also that theme, you can see the themes really coming out in in the work, in these Indigenous business models, Bertrand. That's really exciting. Uh, our final uh, winner that I'll mention uh, is the Digital Inventiveness Award winner, um, which was Rachel Sara of Sara Creative Proprietary Limited. And what we are seeing a lot of, I'm sure you've noticed, is incredible Indigenous creatives who are using design and artistic expression and and branding out through a range of different online platforms and being able to make collaborations and contributions 
around creativity and, and talent. And I think, you know, the democratisation of online in opening up so many markets to Indigenous businesses that they may not have had access to in a in a very traditional location-based way has has really changed the game. And when will there be a Women Entrepreneur Award? Because there are so many Indigenous women who are in business and they are thriving. I speak to many of them. I can't name a few now just out of the top of my head. But uh, I've seen a lot who are really doing very, very well and who are taking the initiative and taking, you know, on um, really very, very encouraging adventures. Uh, when would you have an award to celebrate these uh, powerful women? <laughs> are you, are you uh, putting out a bit of a, a market demand for that yes, new award? Yes, 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 you know, yes. You're, you're drumming up a new idea for us. I like, I like that. Well, I'm happy to take that to the founders to have a discussion about. Maybe for next year. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> now, yeah. before I let you go, then uh, just a closing word for the prospect, where to from now? Yeah, look, I think we are starting to see the resurgence. Now we're in this kind of um, um, post-lockdown period uh, of people wanting to be reconnected in person. Uh, the, we've had over 40 um, events for Bis Indigenous Business Month this year, so it's starting to, to you know, build back up. And I guess you all have noticed in your personal lives just that feeling of almost reunion every time you get together with someone. And I think, you know, we will really want to build Indigenous Business Month up over the next two years as we move towards our 10th um, anniversary, a decade of Indigenous Business Month in 2024. So this was our eighth year um, and, yeah, I just really um, I'm excited for what the future will bring. Thank you so much. No worries. You have a great day. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Now, the federal opposition leader has used his first budget reply speech to lay Australia's economic woes at the feet of the federal government. Peter Dutton says the Labour government's first budget was a missed opportunity to help struggling Australians with the cost of living. Mr Dutton also accused the government of walking away from a key election promise on power bills and urged a debate on nuclear technology to help alleviate the energy crisis. Alan Lee reports. I give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. In his first budget reply speech, Peter Dutton returned to one of his party's regular themes, that is that the Coalition is good at managing the economy while Labour is not. Mr Speaker, we live in the best country in the world. But for millions of Australians, things aren't easy right now. You're facing increasing financial pressures, in your mortgage repayments, insurance premiums, visits to the supermarket, filling up at the petrol station and especially in your power bills. Cost of living is skyrocketing and it may seem out of control, yet it can be kept in check. But not while this Labor government makes bad economic decisions. At a time of deteriorating economic conditions, this story has plenty of relevance. Inflation is now at 7.3%, interest rates continue to climb and Australians are paying more money just to get by. 
And while the Labour government's first budget this week did offer some help with cost of living pressures, it refrained from other measures like cash handouts for fear of feeding inflation. Peter Dutton says this was a mistake. Labor's budget was a missed opportunity to help you at a time when you need help. It didn't address our economic challenges or inspire confidence. It's a budget which breaks promises rather than keeps them. A budget which weakens Australia's financial position rather than strengthens it. And it's a budget which adds to rather than alleviates your cost of living pressures. Labor promised before the federal election that its energy policies would see average household power bills decrease by $275. But instead, the government's first federal budget revealed forecasts of a 56% increase in electricity bills and a 44% spike in gas bills over the next two years. Peter Dutton says the government has broken an election promise. And he even used one of Labor's own attack lines in opposition against it in government. On Tuesday, the Treasurer failed to mention in his speech what Labor's budget papers revealed. Everything is going up except your wages. Cost of living, power prices, taxes, interest rates, unemployment and the deficit are going up or will be going up under the government's predictions. The same budget papers confirmed that real wages are forecast to go down. And this means that by Christmas, a typical family will be $2,000 worse off under this budget. While Mr Dutton acknowledges the war in Ukraine has contributed to higher power bills, he also blames the embrace of renewable energy, calling it reckless. He claims Labor's renewable energy and emissions reduction targets will further increase power prices in the years to come. Mr Dutton says nuclear technology, not renewable, would help ease Australia's energy crisis. Canada, France, Japan, South Korea, the UK and the US are all investing in next-generation, zero-emission nuclear small modular reactors. They are doing this to shore up energy security and to meet their zero-emissions targets. The UK plans to triple the size of its new-generation nuclear by 2050. The imperative to create affordable, reliable and emissions-free energy is why the Coalition is seeking an intelligent conversation on the role that these new-age nuclear technologies might or might not be able to play in the energy mix. Peter Dutton used his speech to defend his own government's economic record, in particular its work during the COVID-19 pandemic. He claimed that Labour inherited a strong economy from the coalition and was now making a mess. As for Labour's claim about $1 trillion of debt, well, even my friends at the ABC with their fact check didn't support that claim. Every democratic government around the world, left or right-leaning, incurred COVID debt. Yet Australia emerged from the pandemic in an economic position the envy of most nations, with debt lower than any other major advanced economy. So when you hear Labor's spin, when you hear them carry on about a wasted decade, it's a distraction from the fact that this government has no economic plan. Peter Dutton also backed in some of the former coalition government's main policies, including the Stage 3 tax cuts. He pledged to bring back plans to allow first home buyers to use their superannuation to purchase a house and to restore $50 million grants program for multicultural communities. But Peter Dutton wasn't all on the attack, lending his support to some Labour policies. They included extending childcare to more families, cheaper medicines, flood relief and tackling domestic violence. Now, Mr Speaker, the job of an opposition is not to oppose for the sake of it. We don't disagree with everything in this budget and policy must be judged on its merits. If it's good for you, we will support it. If it's bad for you, we will stand against it. 
and he says his opposition will continue to hold the government to account, saying its rhetoric has not lived up to its actions. As an opposition, we will stand against Labor's broken promises. We will have a clearly defined, positive and bold plan ahead of the next election to take our country forward. We will support hard-working Australians, we will support all Australians, and we will rebuild a stronger economy for your family and for our country. Thank you very much. Alan Lee, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, the first Aboriginal football soccer player to be selected to represent Australia, John Moriarty, marked Indigenous Football Week, which ran from the 24th to the 30th of October, and a significant milestone. It's been a decade since the Yanua Man launched a program to change the lives of Indigenous children. Oh, I'm a I'm striker, and I just like goal scoring. Uh, it's just a really good sport and just I just love it. And that's Colin Walsh. He comes from Mariba in far north Queensland. The 13-year-old has been playing football for two and a half years. Go! Yep. Teenager has been playing football for two and a half years. He is one of 2,000 Indigenous children in 19 communities across Queensland, New South Wales, and the Northern Territory to take part in the Moriarty Foundation's program, which covers education, health, and football. Foundation coach Bruno Silva says the youngster's talent is clear. Well, we, we do believe amongst the, the team that Colin can go all the way, you know, because obviously has this raw talent that is very, very unique, which is his speed, and um, he can actually be with the ball under control at a tremendous speed, which is something very unusual to find, especially at this young age. Each league men's match <coughs> last weekend celebrated John Moriarty's Football and Indigenous Football Week. It's a measure of just how much the foundation's program has grown since launching a decade ago in Mr. Moriarty's hometown of Bururula with just 120 children. A member of this one generation that went on to play professional football, John Moriarty wants more First Nations children playing the game. Well, we'd like uh, a lot of government support to support us. And uh, we've had no... Uh, in fact, very little support. In the very beginning, we had a little bit, just a tiniest of uh, amount. But uh, then we had to raise everything ourselves. And we need government funding, but also for the Football Association to come uh, to, to support the game and develop it. The dream for scholarship holders is to one day play on football's big stages like at uh, the new Sydney Football Stadium. Rose Moriarty says the foundation's program is about helping players achieve that dream. So we know the talent's there. We know how deep the talent is. It's about creating pathways where we can bring players through with all the other support and um, areas that we can develop these players so they're ready for the national teams. Shea Evans now plays for Sydney FC and was a young Matilda player. She was also the first foundation scholarship recipient. Obviously football has, you know, changed my life and for the Moriarty Foundation, you know, they've given me the opportunity to um, 
you know, try football out and go play places like uh, Catherine and Darwin, and that's where I kind of stuck to it. Colin Walsh has now moved to Sydney to attend Westfield Sports High School. His mum, Deidre Brumby, says it's hard to see him go, but she understands it's the next step he needs to take to one day make football his professional career. And Miss Brumby has no doubt her son can make it. I believe he can. With the um, potential he's got and how the way he plays, I know he's going to be there. And mum's going to be front row seat, I'll tell you now. And that was uh, Miss Deidre Brumby ending this story produced for us by Deborah Grock and Adriana Chuli for SBS News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. And that's all we have for this Wednesday afternoon. NITV Radio will be back on Friday with more news and stories. Bertrand Tungandami, I'm Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for being with us today. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.